This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. On Friday the 11th of November, the Boho Cafe in Awapuni once again played host to the River Stop Stories event, a local history event focused on the history of Awapuni. This time, Margaret Tennant, a local historian of note, was there to talk about local history, and of course, the event also doubled as Boho's birthday. Two People's Radio was there to assist with sound and also recorded the event. Here's the formal portion. Good afternoon. Tēnā koutou Now my haere mai and welcome. Welcome to the our little river stop afternoon. Quite a bit has happened since we met last year, although you mightn't be aware of it all. There's been some fruit trees planted around in their corner plots here. We didn't say much about it because we didn't want them uprooted. <laughs> but we're hoping that they grow. So just, you know, if you see them there, um, look after them and, um, and talk to them. We had a very successful St Matthew's plant fair in September. And due to the fabulous weather, brought everybody out and doubled the number of visitors to our wonderful little library around the corner. Last weekend, there was a lot of people having fun in Raleigh Street Park. And you will have noticed that the signs that tell us about Awapuni as you go through have been corrected. But unfortunately, not much else has happened to slow the traffic. In fact, nothing has happened to slow the traffic. We had hoped to be able to unveil a community defibrillator today. But unfortunately, with supply problems, it hasn't arrived yet. And we're still waiting for it. So let me just start with a few little thanks. Firstly, I'd like to thank City Council for um, their support of the afternoon today and support in other ways, such as the planting. And to Janine, who will talk to us in a few minutes later on, for hosting this event. for our great library branch, for their support in terms of publicity and, and assistance. And for the Man or Two People's Radio for providing the sound for us this afternoon and their support. And to Robert for his musical accompaniment today. Lovely to have you here. I should have said at the beginning who I am, and I'm David Chappell, and I'm one of the little group who try and um, engender some community spirit in, in Awapuni and uh, it's lovely to have you here this afternoon and of course thank you and a special welcome to our speaker this afternoon Margaret Tennant 
Margaret was firstly, formerly, sorry, the Professor of History at Massey and is now an honorary research professor within the School of Humanities. She also holds emeritus status at Massey. Margaret has special expertise in the history of social policy and the history of the non-profit sector. She has edited and co-edited a number of books covering women's history and the history of social policy. In addition, she has published more than 60 books, articles and reports. She was recently part of the team producing City at the Centre, which was the history of Palmerston North. Margaret is involved in a number of heritage organisations, including the Heritage Trust, and I know her as an integral part of Historic Places Manawatu Horafanua. Margaret was awarded a Civic Award in 2021. She has researched the history of Awapuni Home, which of course was the group of buildings now part of the Rangatani Marae. So this talk is part one of two parts, because next year we hope to have a function built around the Marae. That will complete the sort of history, if you like, of, of that group of buildings down the end of the road in Maxwell's line. So I'm delighted to introduce to you Margaret Tennant, who's going to talk to us about those, those buildings down there. Please give her a warm welcome. Even get a musical introduction. Uh, kia ora koutou. Thank you, David. So I was pleased to hear what the plans are for next year because what I'm mainly going to be talking about is the Pākehā history of um, the site that uh, was the Awapuni home. Um, David's already alluded to what, what the Awapuni home was, but for those of you who, who don't know, um, it was a residential home for the elderly run by what was then the Palmerston North Hospital Board it opened in 1915 and um, closed at the end of 1989. So uh, where was it? It was the end of Maxwell's line, now the site of Tehutu Manawatu or Rangatani or Manawatu Marae, and uh, now associated with their health services. So it was always a core site for Rangitane with Wahitapu um, associated with it. But this part of their um, reserves was sold off in the late 19th century as Rangitane came, came under increasing economic pressure. It came under the Kairanga County Council, which donated the land to the Palmerston North Hospital Board for an old man's home, when the need for such a facility became, uh, was touted from around about 1908-1911. Um, the council also leased another 10 acres to the board at a generous rate, meaning that the home also had its own land for food production, so a little farmlet was attached to it. So the question then is, why did it come about? And here we have what was sometimes called the old man problem, uh, which is, it may have taken various forms, but it took a particular form at the end of the 19th century. You'll notice I, I might have mentioned the term old men's home because that's what it was usually called in the first part of the 20th century. Today, something like 80% of the residents of care homes are women. 
A century or more ago, they were uh, the, the proportions were pretty much reversed. As a result of the patterns of Pākehā migration, which saw more single men than women among the settler population. In the late 1860s, those aged over 65 made up 86.86%, less than 1%, of the population of Aotearoa New Zealand. By the late 1890s, it was more, uh, more like... Um, 5%, or certainly by 9-11, it was 5%. There was, so there's quite a percentage of those increase of those who are in the old age group, which was usually, um, some of us may raise our eyebrows, but was usually counted as being those aged over 65. Um, I'll come back to that particular statistic <laughs> later on. Um, it used to be so far away, but now I'm afraid not. Um, so a significant proportion of this elderly male population by uh, the end of the century were in pretty poor shape. Many of them had never married. Many of them had been itinerant throughout their lives. They'd lived a hard life of hard physical labour and uh, quite a high proportion, judging by institutional statistics, were alcoholics. In the borough of Palmerston North by 1900, there were actually slightly more women than men, and this was more typical of urban centres than rural. But men predominated among the so-called destitute elderly. So what happened to them when they were no longer able to earn a living? In Palmerston North, the Hospital and Charitable Aid Board, as it was then called, uh, paid to keep some of these derelicts, and this is a term you find in the newspaper quite a bit, in boarding houses. Here they remained all too visible in the community, loitering in the streets and frequenting public houses. By 1908, there were calls for a retreat where, quote, those whom fortune, to whom, with whom fortune had dealt harshly might spend their declining years in reasonable comfort, the words of the Manawatu standard. The Director General of Health was keen to see a kind of super facility for the aged of Palmerston North and Wellington and everywhere in between, um, who would be delivered by rail to an institution that he planned to build in Otaki. One of the pleasantest and healthiest spots in New Zealand, where medical and every other assistance will be at hand, along with, he added, judicious discipline. There were cosy descriptions how um, each old man might tend his own, own little garden in the sunny climes of Otaki after being scrubbed up and restored to health and self-respect. And I'll come back to the scrubbed up bit. <laughs> but by this time, Ellen Wood, the wife of former Palmerston North Mayor and MP William Wood, had taken up the cause locally, leading an immensely successful fundraising campaign for a local facility which then gained a fairly generous government subsidy. The tragic death in 1910 of one poor derelict, described in the newspapers as Crayfish Charlie, the crayfish was alluding to whatever was wrong with him, and I'm not quite sure what it was because he had so much wrong with him. Charles Warren, to give him his proper name, suffered from heart disease, kidney failure, dropsy and diabetes. 
He'd formerly been in the 70th, 70th Regiment of the Imperial Forces, but had entered into decline after the, the, those days. He and a fellow derelict dwelt in a two-room shanty in a paddock near the junction of Rangitiki Street and Boundary Road. Boundary Road is what's now Tremaine Avenue, so if you think of going up Tremaine Avenue and hitting Tremaine Avenue, that's where Crayfish Charlie and his mate hung out. He had been the subject of vagrancy charges by the, from the police and had been turned out of other shelters despite the best efforts of the charitable aid officer to find him suitable accommodation. The Manawatu Times graphically described how Crayfish Charlie had rotted out of life with rats running over him. He was unable to obtain even a drink of water because the other old man was unable to help himself, let alone his mate. The scandal of Crayfish Charlie's death rocked the community once the coroner's description of the man's decayed body and filthy hovel became uh, public. So in 1915, a brand spanking old people's home was opened, taking its, its first residence in February of that year. Not all of whom, it appears, actually wanted to be here. There are plenty of complaints on record, um, or there were in the hospital board records when I had access to them when I was doing my PhD, um, where men were saying they'd much rather stay in the boarding house in the centre of town than go out to the country, which is, in Mac which is what Maxwell's line was in those days. They wanted to be in the middle of the town, not, um, not out in the country. But this was quite common with many social welfare institutions at the time, psychiatric institutions, borstals later on and so on. You put your problematic cases out in the country where hopefully they could um, find work tending um, a farm or gardens or whatever. And they were well out of sight of the respectable townspeople. Um, designed by Frederick de Jersey Clare, the home was safely on the outskirts of Palmerston North then, well away from pubs, and with a farmlet of about 20 acres to provide works for those who were able to do it. There were main dormitories for each sex, with small, smaller side rooms for the bedridden, all rooms um, leading off a corridor which ran the whole length of the building. There were sitting rooms for the inmates, as they are invariably called in the records, a dining room off the administration block, an excellently equipped bathrooms, a laundry, and a kitchen fitted out with the latest appliances. It was the epitomes of 1915 hospital style. Accommodation was provided for eight female inmates, the term used, as I said, and 22 males, as well as a housemaid, cook, wardsman, and gardener while the matron had her own bedroom, sitting room and office. Outside was the garden and a small farm producing vegetables and milk for the institution and for the hospital. There were plans to rear pigs and poultry with the assistance of inmate labour. This didn't result in a lavish diet for the so-called inmates. A ration scale from around the time of the home's opening specifies that each inmate would be allowed precisely one pound of bread per day, one and a half ounces of butter, three-quarters of a pint of milk, three-eighths of an ounce of tea, three ounces of sugar, and one pound of potatoes. Not exactly, I would have thought, a balanced diet. We assume they might have got at least some of the vegetables grown, but the produce, because it was also destined for the public hospital, um, they would have just got the leftovers. At the Awapuni Homes official opening on 15th of April 1915, much praise was also bestowed on Mrs Ellen Wood for her advocacy of the home, 
And much was also made of the need for the old pioneers who had fallen, need to care for the old pioneers who had fallen back on life's race. Still, the rules of the home didn't suggest any great high, any great high expectations of inmate behaviour. And if I can read some out, inmates were to conduct themselves in an orderly manner and to obey the orders of the matron. They were under, to undertake work in the home without gratuity or reward. Each was to subject himself to a hot bath and a change of clothing on admission and was required to have a bath at least once a week. Um, this is quite a necessary requirement after some old men each elsewhere had threatened litigation to avoid having to have a bath once a week and had to be, the Inspector General of Hospitals had to put out an order that they could be required to have a bath or be booted out. Spitting was banned in rooms except for utensils provided. Inmates were not to swear or to use obscene or profane language. They were not to bring liquor into the home or to leave the ground without permission of the matron. Any removal of food, clothing or any other item remaining belonging to the home would result in the discharge and prosecution for theft. And research I did on some of the other institutions shows why this was a pretty standard rule because the old men elsewhere weren't beyond uh, nicking a few things and including other inmates' false teeth and going to the, lo- <laughs> going to the local pawn shop um, to get money for alcohol, pawning them for alcohol. Um, By the 1920s, the rules also specified that inmates were not to gamble, create noise, nor in any way behave indecently, or to disturb or annoy any other inmate in any manner whatsoever. So prescriptions of this kind were responses to actual and anticipated misdemeanours. The home was not necessarily a place of ready compliance and gratitude for the care received. And again, this was not uh, a, a specific problem with Awapuni. It was pretty common where you had men who had never really been domesticated, shall we say, um, having to go into an institutional setting and live alongside large numbers of others. They didn't do that very readily. And it was quite striking in many other places when I did research that the women's wards were often described as homely. The men's wards were much more uh, grubby and uh, problematic and disorderly. So the women were used, I think, complying to other people's needs and wishes. The men were not. So there's no lack of references in the following years to refractory or truculent inmates, and this is reported in the newspapers, to petty squabbles and occasional fisticuffs. The inmates weren't backward in making complaints about staff either, occasionally accusing them of swearing, stealing and immorality. There were the wanderers, like the one who caught the wrong bus home from town, and ended up at the Terracene Cemetery before falling asleep on the railway line, fortunately to be discovered by local residents and uh, sent back to the home. There were the letter writers, like one Richard Shaw, who wrote to the Governor-General in the early years of the home, complaining about a lost and he implied stolen money order. But most of the letters taken up, it's quite a tragic letter because it's taken up with his multiple health issues, He claimed to have malaria, dipsomania, leprosy, Bright's disease, cancer of the gums and a chest infection. And there's a little comment at the bottom, nonsense. This is from the hospital board secretary in a note on the bottom. The man was in the pink of health but had received a message from the Almighty telling him not to work. (laughs) So again, a a, a sort of insight into the preoccupations and 
and um, concerns of, of the residents and, of course, about their own health. I could give more of these examples, but what I want to do in the rest of the talk is to focus on the transition of the Awapuni home from a home intended primarily for indigent men to a form of geriatric hospital, um, as we might know it today. An early indication of this trajectory came from the initial appointment of a trained nurse or matron, rather than a master, to run the home. Um, There was quite a lot of debate as to which way to go in the hospital board. Many homes had a master and a matron, the master was a man who was intended to run the home and to instill discipline, where his wife was the matron, basically a housekeeper. But eventually, thanks to the pressure from the women board members, Ada Kilgar, who was one of the first nurses to gain registration at Palmerston North Hospital, uh, was appointed as a, ma- a, a matron. So it's significant that they have a trained nurse there right from the start. And that this trained nurse... Um, also had experience as a district nurse in Christchurch. She'd also been matron of the Kumara Hospital. But as a district nurse, she also had experience in dealing with old people and their illnesses. Interestingly, she was also given um, leave during the war to serve on the hospital ship Mahino. So she was one um, one of the nurses who went overseas in World War I. And like most of her charges, she actually died at the home. When a staff member took the matron her early morning cup of tea on November 1922, she was found dead in bed, um, having apparently succumbed to a known heart condition. She was only in her early 50s at the time. But the point is that leadership of the home came under a trained female nurse, and the number of nursing staff and nursing aides soon expanded. The the place also looked like a hospital right from the start and was laid out with wards like a hospital, whereas many other old people's homes of the time were really just um, large houses that had been um, used to uh, home elderly people. But all this led to a relationship around the home's relationship with the public hospital and where to put so-called chronics or incurables those with paralysis, TB, cancer and other terminal conditions. Hospital doctors who by this time saw their institution as a place of active treatment, cure and speedy discharge didn't want them there. But nor was the Awapuni home actually equipped to deal with the seriously ill or to give skilled treatment and dedicated nursing care to the extent that these cases required. There was a bigger question of whether places like Awapuni were to be homes for those in their twilight years. So there's quite a lot of discourse around the institution as a home. Um, Perhaps living there, doing a bit of work to earn their keep. Or would they be hospitals where people with incurable conditions could get skilled nursing care? And if it was the latter, did you actually need to be old to go there if you had something like cancer? or tuberculosis. Either way, hospital board members weren't keen on retaining these costly long-term cases, certainly not in the main hospital, and they hoped that private provision could be made for them. At the time, nobody really wanted these unfortunates. And this was part of a national debate. 
the Hawapuni Homes Future Direction being decided in 1936 when two new wards were opened for Chronics and the name was shortened to Awapuni Home and by the 1950s and 60s it was known as the Awapuni Hospital. So this identity, identifying of the place as a hospital, had taken place really by the um, 1960s. By this time, a new generation of rest homes was emerging. In 1950, the national government introduced 50% subsidies, capital subsidies, for um, the building of um, facilities for old people, which encouraged the churches in particular to start to um, construct or um, equip their own institutions. In Palmerston North, Presbyterian Social Services opened the Brightwater Home as a, as a newly built facility and took over the Willard Home, which had previously been a children's home. And this is an interesting thing, actually, as a sideline in the history of church social services. The churches, churches were really into um, care for children in the first part of the century. As this became unpopular or not seen as, as good for children, many of them... Um, transformed their children's homes into homes for the elderly. So the Willard Home, which had originally been opened by the Women's Christian Temperance Union as a children's home, became um, a home for the elderly, which it remains, I think. Another new development was the notion of the retirement village based on American models. Churches and charitable trusts led the way nationally. Some rest homes, like the Brightwater Home, built modest residences for those able to live independently. But from the 1990s, a new generation of uh, purpose-built, profit-driven retirement villages emerged, geared not to low-income people, but to those able to pay. Um, chains like uh, Somerset, MetLife Care, uh, I think Ryman was one of the earliest, um, started this kind of retirement village model and accelerate, they accel it accelerated enormously in the 1990s. Many were and still are intended for the young old, um, those seeking support and company of others rather than full care through incapacity. Many of the existing trust-owned villages were taken over by commercial operators from the 1990s. The problem of the homeless elderly unable to afford, afford to go into a retirement village and increasingly um, they're, they're unable to afford private rents. This problem still remains and I think the um, disjunction, if you like, between those, those able to afford to buy into retirement villages and those um, unable to even pay private rents is, is, seems to be increasing. So what of the Awapuni home? I wrote an article on the, for the Manawatu Journal of History where by the, I noted that by the 1960s it was increasingly regarded as an earthquake risk. The Palmerston North Hospital Board drew up plans for a long-term care facility at Akautri. And what's interesting about this, um, they intended that this facility, again, it sort of has shades of being a bit of a dumping ground for those who they couldn't think of placing anywhere else. It was not just for the elderly, but for younger disabled people in psychiatric cases. The City Council Planning Department, interestingly, opposed um, the facility being located at a Akautri on the grounds that the 
Uh, Council's long-term plan, plan was then for, the exp for expansion in the direction of Bunnythorpe and that a facility at Akautri would be too isolated. So things have changed enormously on the planning front since then. <coughs> in the end, um, new orthodoxies went against the idea of the large institution for old and disabled people. Community care was becoming the catch cry, and by the 1980s, the hospital board was moving away from institutional care for the elderly and promoting expanded community support services instead. And that's, ten, that's their current thrust, is to keep people in their own homes for as long as possible, but also to provide subsidised care in institutions usually provided by others if needed um, and with due um, income, sorry, asset testing. The Awapuni home closed in 1989 and many of you will be aware of the site's subsequent history. When the Area Health Board proposed to auction the facility, Rangitane began the process of re regaining this historically important site for their, their iwi. Through the sale of an existing property in Main Street and other fundraising, the land returned to Rangitane with the iwi social service arm Whakapai Haora basing itself there. So the health link remained uh, along with a range of other social and environmental services. In 2004, Tutu Paumau was opened as the first rangitane marae within the city boundaries since the Kiki Whenua marae further along and rather close to the Mangoni stream was burnt down with an apparent arson in 1925. The old Awapuni Hospital was the product of its time and a reflection of the needs of a particular historical constituency of need. It changed from being uh, an old men's home, often, often their only home ever, into a geriatric hospital staffed by nurses and nurse aides. And it was in this stage of its life um, that I made my acquaintance with it. My grandfather was temporarily there in the early 1960s when his behaviour came, became problematic for a while. But I best remember it through visits to my grandmother on my father's side in the late 1960s. Grandma had had both legs amputated um, because of poor circulation after years of chronic arthritis and a broken hip, both conditions that today would be treated much more proactively than they could be at the time. There was nowhere else in the whole area that would take someone requiring her level of care. I remember visiting her in a long ward um, where she lay in her bed alongside dementia and other cases. In the days before incontinence products, there was a vague smell of urine which my teenage self noticed. But the sister in charge was wonderfully caring and understanding, doing her best to make Grandma comfortable. The aides, many of them young women from the city's relatively new Pacifica population, were cheery and kindly, and Grandma loved them and spoke well of the care she received. When another resident came along and started eating Grandma's flowers, <laughs> Grandma gently chided the teenage me for remarking on the lady's behaviour. I'm sick in my body, she said. She's just sick in her mind. <laughs> Grandma seems so old at the time, but I'm chastened when I realise she was only two years older than I 
when she died at the Awapuna Hospital in 1969. Lessons in that, I think. Karma, perhaps. The old hospital was a descendant of the rather grim, benevolent institutions of the 19th century, but I think we must remember it was also a place of great humanity in many forms and of great kindness on the part of staff there. I'll leave it at that, and some other people may have their own memories or questions they want to ask about it. David. Thank you, Margaret. Does anybody have any questions for Margaret? Or memories. I know we have at least one person who used to work there. Is that right? Yes? I don't know if you'd like to, to, to say anything about that. Do you have any memories or recollections? You had to have a great sense of humour. Yes, I'm sure you would have had. I guess to many people it was just the buildings that you went past because it was stood out there on its own, I guess. Uh, I do remember when I first came to town they'd built the, is it Octagonal Chapel? Which was a very fine building and still a fine building, fine space. And I remember being taken down there to have a look at this building and, um, and um, wondered at, at the whole extent of the buildings that were there. But this was a beautiful building and uh, the shape of it is still there and uh, not, not used in the same way. But it's, um, it was a nice... Um, the hospital board at the time, I think, treated it very carefully and uh, was, was you know, very, very um, conscientious about it. But, uh, and they had their own architects, but... Uh, that again was something that's changed and that all, all those sort of people that gave individual care to those places is gone. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult place. Um, so it was in the country and it's hard to, re hard to remember that and imagine that, but some of you will, will know that. Um, I know what my wife says that when she came here, College Street stopped here or something. And so, um, you know, there, there it was, you went out in the country to, to, to the hospital. And um, I think what you've highlighted is the change in all those things that have happened since then. And, we, you know, people seem to um, try and judge the people of those days in, on our terms, today's terms, and it's not, I don't think that's fair. As you say, it was a, there was a lot of compassion, a lot of help, and a lot of uh, understanding for the people that were there. And it was their way of trying to solve that problem. And we solved the problems nowadays, and as you point out, there's still issues about people who can afford things and people who can't. And I'm sure the next generation will look at us and say, oh, what on earth were they doing then? <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I remember gaining weight. Um, but you got to know the, the folk 
That's lovely. Thank you. I'm sure there's a chance when we have afternoon tea for you to, to share anything and to make any other comments that you might like to make with them, and particularly to Margaret. Uh, yes. 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 services on a Sunday morning about 9am in the chapel. So one morning he invited me down to be the organist there, which became a regular thing occasionally, and um, get out of bed early to do an early morning church service before you go to the main one in St David's. But I walked down the corridor to the chapel and I heard the organ playing. I thought, and it was very good music. It was rich. And I thought, well, what am I, you know? <laughs> I was totally flummoxed because I walked into the chapel. Uh, there was an organ on the side, which I was going to be playing, but pushed into it was an elderly gentleman. I found that he was a Mr. Dodds. He was pushed into the organ in the wheelchair. I don't know where he was mentally, but his hands, oh, it was rich. And I'd heard later that he played many pipe organs around New Zealand, which at the time I did too. But um, it was just it was one of those magic moments yeah. in that chapel. And, and the chapel's still there? Yes, it's, it's still there. Yes, I think it's got, I think it had my recollections it had stained glass windows in it. And that I, yeah, they're not, I don't think, don't think they're still there, are they? Anyway, I would no, let Mr. Like... Dodds play when I arrived in future uh, engagements until the service started and then they would wheel him away and I would get on with the, the proper music that I had to read and, and be fully aware of. Yeah. <laughs> How lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Now, is Janine here? Coming. Because this... Thank you. Yeah. This is a special day um, also for um, Janine and Boho. And um, over to you, my dear. Oh, thank you. I don't think I don't think I need to use it. You can all hear me. I've got a big loud voice, haven't I? Can you hear me down the back? Yeah, lovely. Well, um, first of all, it's just so lovely to see you all here today. Um, last year we held our fifth uh, birthday celebrations, um, and there were quite so many of you because I think we were impacted by COVID last year. But this year, 
Um, it's just so lovely to see so many of you, and we do extend a very warm welcome to you all, and thank you all for coming. Um, Mace, unfortunately, can't be here today. He is um, working, beavering away at home, um, and but he would normally be here, but he does also extend his welcome to you all and invite you to stay and enjoy some afternoon tea with us. This year, we're celebrating our sixth birthday, which um, is really quite amazing. Um, there was a gentleman that was just down the back there that was just reminiscing with me this morning that somebody said to him, when we open, they shook their head, they, mm, it'll never last. <laughs> <laughs> so we're delighted that we've been here for six years now and that we're going from strength to strength. And on that note, you're going to be the first to um, be able to see the new signs for down the back, where we're going to have boho in the back. Um, from this weekend on, uh, we will have, uh, we will be opening Mrs. Bo's Botanical and Curiosity Emporium, which will have, um, <laughs> I don't know, it will bring, bring uh, many of my loves together, flowers and, and all sorts of curious and interesting things. Um, you'll be able to have your tea and coffee and, and your lunch down there. Um, I'm a little bit aggressive for me to get open um, completely this year. There are two rooms down there that next year that will turn into being able to be used for functions for um, small groups, for um, baby showers, you know, um, hens, do's. Um, and also in winter when we lose out the front there, um, we'll be able to have the overflow down the back. So do look out and come and see us. Um, we'll be open from Saturday. So you're all invited to come down there. And just if you're reading up and you want to book down there, just, just remind us that it's actually down the back at Mrs. Bowes, not, not up in this part, and we'll be able to make a booking for you. Um, but I guess that's... I just want to extend a big thank you to the community in Aupini. Um, You guys have been absolutely amazing, and there are people here that have supported us every step of the way, um, and they still do, and they still do all sorts of fabulous things for me. Uh, we have a group called the Riverstock um, Aupuni uh, Group, and um, that we meet fairly regularly. We do interesting and fun things around here, um, but they're just an absolute um, treasure for this community. And as are you all, we're we're um, Mason and I and, and the team here are very um, aware of the fact that we're only here because you guys keep coming back, and that allows us to do what we love doing, which is serving you and, and bringing you the good times with your family and friends, so we do invite you to stay and enjoy some hospitality and the quality of all, and thank you all so much for coming. I have to ask my team members what we're supposed to do now. I should point out that there's, I think there's, um, I can't count that well, but I think there's four or something of us, and I'm the only male, so I got the job of standing up the front. They all voted, and I, you know, it was a three to one vote, and here I am. Had, here's Bev. Bev's one of them. Interesting, one of the things we've been looking at and sorting out is some of the history around the place and, and Robert was sharing with me before that um, the Scout Hall which some of you will know across the road or Guide Hall that's um, across the road in, on uh, off College Street there 
um, the council is looking for maybe a new use for it or what to do about it. And Robert was telling me that it was a gymnasium and an older hall down at St David's and Terrace End and it was moved here. So that uh, it's a um, little bit of history there that we, we didn't realise. Um, so it's an import, so we don't really worry about that. <laughs> so, Bev. I'm Bev, I'm one of the Riverstock Alapunian. My job is really lovely because I just get to give out the thank you gifts. And you don't really, really need it, but you've got one this year. Yes. Robert's wonderful, he comes every year, plays his sweet thank you very much. Um, computer, which is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> for, um, it sometimes plays even without him playing it. <laughs> I heard it before. Thank you very much. So that's the formalities, as formal as they are. And um, I see that afternoon tea is now coming out. So please um, mix and share and uh, enjoy the rest of the time. Manawatu People's Radio Teleo Irurangi Ongatangata o Manawatu. That was the formal portion of the River Stop Stories event uh, for Awapuni local history held at the Boho Cafe in Awapuni on Friday the 11th of November 2022. If you'd like to hear more recordings of events like this, you can find those as podcasts on our website at npr.nz slash show slash specials. Right now, we'll continue with the Sunday Live Zone. Enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.